Well, one day, uh, this uh, nice uh, young Christian woman uh, went shopping for a new dress. She and her husband were going to be at a special event, and she thought she would get a, a new dress for the occasion. But it, she found one, and it was very, very expensive. I mean, it was a lot of money. And she bought it, and she brought it home. And when her husband found out just how much she had spent on it, he said, now, honey, why in the world would you buy such an expensive dress? You know we really can't afford that. Well, she decided to kind of play the spiritual card, and she said, uh, looked at her husband, and she said, but, but honey, you don't understand. The devil made me do it. She said, I tried it on, and the devil said, now, girlfriend, you look awesome in that dress. Uh, that dress is you all over. You've got to have that dress. Well, the husband, playing along, responded, well then, honey, why didn't you tell the devil, get thee behind me, Satan? <laughs> Not to be outdone, the wife said, I did tell the devil, get thee behind me, Satan. And when he went behind me, he told me the dress looked just as good from back there, too. <laughs> so you just can't get rid of Satan. He gets you coming and going, right? Uh, he's everywhere. He's lurking around every corner with his lies and deceit, waging war on Christians. That's the reason that Paul said in Ephesians chapter 6 that we should put on the whole armor of God so that we can stand against the wiles of the devil. That word wiles is the Greek word methodeia. It's where we get our English word method, methodology or method. It's only used two times in the New Testament, both in connection with the devil and his earthly accomplices trying to do evil. Uh, both in Ephesians, actually, which is not surprising if you remember our study through the book of Acts. There was a lot of spiritual warfare that took place in Ephesus. And so as Paul writes back uh, to the people in Ephesus from prison years later, it's not surprising he ad addresses this. But he reminds us that uh, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, rulers of darkness of this age, spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. But that word wiles literally means deceitful scheming and plotting. Later, uh, or, uh, the other place in Ephesians that it's used, it's called cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. That word plotting is that same word methodeia. Well, as we pick up the text in our study through 1 Thessalonians, we get to chapter 2, verse 14, and we see that by believing the gospel, these uh, people in Thessalonica had followed in the line of many others who, having believed in Jesus Christ, soon found themselves uh, attracting the attention of the enemy. Listen to what Paul says, For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God, which are in Judea in Christ Jesus. That's good. He frequently commends them, as we've already seen, for their godliness, their spiritual maturity. But here he's talking about how they found themselves imitators in a different sense. He says, you also suffered the same things from your own countrymen, just as they did from the Judeans. They were suffering. I had the privilege of working years ago when I was a member of the Council on Dispensational Hermeneutics with the late Dr. Robert L. Thomas, one of the greatest theologians of the last century. Uh, and I really just was in awe of working with him in a small group setting to tackle a particular passage of Scripture. And one of the things that he said that stuck with me is persecution inevitably arises from the outside when a Christian patterns his life after the Lord. If you're going to walk in Christ, if you're going to be a believer, you're going to face persecution. Mark it down. 
It's inevitable as long as we live in this earth, as long as we're topside this earth. Going back to the text, Paul talks about how these people were in Christ. They're in Christ Jesus. That's a very powerful and unique theme in Paul's writing. It's unique to Paul. More than 160 times he talks about how believers are in Christ. And if we're in Christ, it means we're part of the family of God. We are positionally in Christ where we belong to him. So it follows then that Satan is going to try to attack. He's going to wage war against God's people because he's already waging war against God himself. It's a war that started in the heavenlies when Satan led a coup attempt trying to take over uh, the heavens. Uh, That didn't work out too well for him. He was banished and took one-third of the angels with him. And since then, he set his sights on earth. But uh, there is a war raging. Satan hates God, and therefore he hates God's people. The Lord said to Peter, if you remember this uh, moment here when Peter ended up denying Christ, and the Lord warned him about it, he said, Simon, Simon, indeed Satan has asked for you. We need never forget that Obviously, the Lord allows Satan a certain amount of liberty today, but it all has to pass through the Lord. And even in Satan's attacks and the suffering that we face, as unjust as it is in our realm, in our sphere, somehow God in the eternal realm is using it all for his honor and his glory. We could think of Job and how, uh, you know, Job had to get, uh, or, or Satan had to get God's permission to attack Job. But Peter tells us that he's an adversary. The devil is. The word adversary there is a Greek word that's used in legal settings to refer to one's opponent in a courtroom. So you've got the plaintiff and the defendant, and, and they're both opposing each other. Well, that's what Satan is. He's our, he's our uh, accuser. He's our enemy. He's the one coming up uh, against us. He's our adversary. He's accusing us before the Lord, just like we read, we read in Job. But notice he's seeking whom he may devour. The Bible tells us the whole world right now lies under the sway of the wicked one. So I want to talk about Satan's war on God's people as we continue our look at 1 Thessalonians 2. It's a a theme that sort of comes through as Paul writes endearingly again to these early believers, and in the first couple of chapters really have been all about commending them for their faith and so forth. But we see a theme emerge in this section of Satan hindering and, and warring against God's people. Uh, For context, in case you're just uh, joining us for this series, uh, the year is 51 AD. It's the summertime. Paul is on his second missionary journey. He had already visited Thessalonica where he led these people to the Lord along with his uh, other missionary partners, Silas and Timothy, and and they, they had a great evangelistic harvest there. And now it's about six months later, he's writing back to them from Corinth, and, and that's the context of what we're reading. The book of First and Second Thessalonians has a lot to do with the end times and the rapture and preparing them as a motivation to, to keep on uh, serving the Lord, the soon coming of, of his return. But I see in this section here five elements of Satan's war. Five elements of Satan's war. The first one is homicide. Satan's a killer. And if you don't know that by now, then you're, you've not really been reading the Bible because it starts with Satan wanting to kill. Uh, death came into the world because Satan tempted Eve and Adam and Eve took the bait. But we read in verse 15, in the next verse in our text, that these enemies killed the Lord Jesus and their own prophets. Just as Satan is a killer, his earthly accomplices are killers. And Satan is absolutely obsessed with death. Uh, all throughout 
uh, the, the scripture. We see again and again Satan trying to kill people and ultimately trying to kill the Christ child. Because remember, early on, God warned Satan in the garden when he confronted him after the fall that the seed of the woman would ultimately be to his demise. So he knew that uh, in, in the sense that he was attacking humans, trying to kill humans, trying to get humans to uh, worship him instead of God, it would be a God-man, a fully human, yet fully God, Jesus Christ, the ultimate seed of the woman, capital S, the virgin birth, that Jesus Christ come in the flesh that would destroy him once and for all. We see this uh, concept of Satan's obsession with death throughout Scripture. For example, we know that Herod tried to kill the young child, that's Christ, when Joseph and Mary had the Christ child. And that's why he set uh, an edict that any child under two years old had to be killed. He was trying to kill. He's a killer. Uh, that's, again, back to Peter's statement. He's seeking whom he may devour. The book of Revelation calls Satan Abaddon and Apollyon. Abaddon is Hebrew for destruction. Apollyon is destroyer. That's just who he is. He's a killer. Jesus said in the upper room, or not in the upper room discourse, but in John 10, talking to his disciples, he says, the thief does not come except to steal, to kill, and to destroy. That's, that's Satan's MO. He, Jesus said earlier, it's a, he was a murderer from the beginning. So homicide killing is a key aspect of Satan's war. He wants to kill unbelievers before they come to faith. And he wants to kill believers so they don't have a good example to set and shine like stars in this perverse generation. He's all about death. I deal with the depopulation program of the Luciferians, Satan's earthly co-conspirators, in chapter 10 of my book, Spirit of the Antichrist, volume 1. And then I touch on it a bit in the next two books as well. But I trace the horrific history of the depopulation program uh, throughout history, and particularly in America, <laughs> Uh, I pick it up in the early 20th century. Just about every town of any size had a eugenics office, a government-sponsored eugenics off office. You can see uh, historical markers all throughout uh, the country. And uh, these eugenics offices were intending, uh, as this pamphlet says, to create the self-direction of human evolution. In other words, they believed it, the Darwinian lie that mankind is getting better and better as long as you weed out the feeble-minded, which means people of color, people who walked with a limp, people who didn't look like them, people who had any physical ailments. Get rid of them, slaughter them, kill them, and certainly don't let them uh, procreate. And so when we get to the Second World War, Hitler was simply living out the Darwinian ethic. Uh, uh, Darwin was one of Hitler's heroes, and so he just put into practice this, this uh, concept. It was social Darwinism. That's what eugenics ultimately is. And, and why do you think, by the way, that the Rockefeller Foundation and Carnegie Foundation that I mentioned uh, in, during the announcements uh, demanded that evolution be taught to every child in America when they launched the compulsory government schooling programs in 1918. By 1918, every state in, at the time in the United States was required to teach the kids from first grade on. Why? So that they could kind of lead them down this path. A lot of people, even your average seventh grade biology teacher, has no idea that the subtitle of Darwin's book, uh, Origin of the Species, is actually Preservation of Favored Races in the Struggle for Life. See, Darwin was not a scientist. He was a eugenicist. He wanted to kill people so that only the elite 
could, could take over. Only Satan's ultimate cream of the crop from his perspective. In his companion work, 1871, remember he wrote uh, Origin of the Species in 1859. The companion book, The Descent of Man, Darwin said, most people are evolutionary dead ends and only a small elite is actually evolving. Everyone else just gets in the way. And this is what they're teaching young people today with the UN propaganda, such as uh, this poster here where one of the gods of the universe, a doctor, uh, is diagnosing the earth's problem. Well, what's the problem with the earth? Well, it's got too many humans. Humans are a disease. They're a sickness. Children are taught to replicate this in their artwork in class today. Oh, I'm sure you have humans. That's the problem. And that's the whole global uh, warming, climate change uh, lie, is that it's humans that are the problem. We just got to get rid of them. And that's why again and again in their writings, they talk about reducing the earth's uh, population. Uh, now King Charles, before he was king, uh, put forth the Terra Carta, he called it, a play on the Magna Carta, which is the foundation for all civilized law, in which he said the earth has inalienable rights, and it's better than mankind, and trees and animals and plants are better than humans, and, and then we should worship the earth, which is exactly what the Bible predicts is going to happen, worshiping uh, the created rather than the creator. One of the biggest mouthpieces of this right now is you've all know Harari. You've heard me uh, talk about him uh, before. Uh, I have a whole chapter uh, addressing him in the latest uh, book. But he truly is ma making the circuit, promoting the, this notion that mankind is bad. Not in a moral sense, uh, certainly not in a theological sense, but we're just you know, terrible, useless, replaceable beings, replaceable by transhumanism, by artificial intelligence, uh, you name it. He's an Israeli public intellectual historian and a professor. Uh, he's, he's hugely popular right now. I mean, not just with world leaders, but in, not just in academia, but he speaks at major conferences all over the world. He is essentially the voice of this eugenics, modern-day eugenics concept of depopulation. For example, he says the future is about developing more and more sophisticated technology like artificial intelligence and bioengineering. Notice, most people don't contribute anything to that. We're not sophisticated, uh, except, of course, for their data. I mean, that's huge. What he's basically saying is, we want to get rid of most of you useless breathers, but we'd like to keep a few of you in the laboratory to gain data from you like lab rats. Uh, and whatever people are still doing, which is useful, these technologies increasingly will make redundant and make it possible to replace the people. See, that's what Satan wants to do. He wants to get rid of humanity, recreate it, build back better, order out of chaos so that he can be in your face to God when he says, look, see your highest pinnacle of creation made in your image, it's nothing. We destroyed it and we've made it better, transhumanism. He goes on to say 99% of human qualities and abilities are simply redundant for the performance of most modern jobs. Now, I want to play a 90-second clip here uh, that should just chill you to the bone. It's Harari likening humans to jellyfish and ostriches, and we have no free will. That's just a myth in the same way that God is a myth. There's no God. There's no free will. But notice at the end of this clip, he kind of tacks on at the end this correlation between the fact that, in their view, humans have no free will Likewise, there's no such thing as nation states or national sovereignty. No such thing as America or Israel. We're all just part of a larger thing. He's, he's simultaneously, that's the reason I want to show this clip, 
is in 90 seconds, he hits the main points of the Luciferian agenda that are uh, leading the day. So listen to this clip. Many, maybe most legal systems are based on this idea, this belief in human rights. But human rights are just like heaven and like God. It's just a fictional story that we've invented and spread around. It may be a very nice story. It may be a very attractive story. We want to believe it. But it's just a story. It's not a reality. It is not a biological reality. Just as jellyfish and woodpeckers and ostriches have no rights, homo sapiens have no rights also. Take a human, cut him open, look inside. You find their blood and you find the heart and lungs and kidneys, but you don't find there any rights. The only place you find rights is in the fictional stories that humans have invented and spread around. And the same thing is also true in the political field. States and nations are also like human rights and like God and like heaven. They too are, are, are just stories. A mountain is a reality. You can see it, you can touch it, you can even smell it. But Israel or the United States, they are just stories, very powerful stories, stories we might want to believe very much, but still they are just stories. You can't really see the United States. You cannot touch it. You cannot smell it. See what he's trying to do there? He's preparing us for biblical prophecy the one world political, religious, and economic system when states don't matter. You can't really see the United States. There's really no rule of law. There's no uh, human rights. It's all part of this elite uh, system. And so Satan's a murderer. He's, homicide is a key part of uh, his uh, agenda and has been for 6,000 years. A few years ago, some of the nation's wealthiest people got together for what was supposed to be a private meeting. Uh, it leaked out and, and several news outlets covered it, Good Morning America, Forbes, and others. Uh, but it involved left to right there on the screen, Bill Gates, Ted Turner, George Soros, David Rockefeller, Michael Bloomberg, Oprah Winfrey, and Warren Buffett. The Wall Street Journal uh, carried the story. The reason that they held this secret meeting was to try to shrink the world's population. That was their goal. How could they use their wealth to get rid of us useless uh, breathers. It was held at the home of Sir Paul Nurse, who was president of Rockefeller University at the time. The invitation that was sent out it was signed by Bill Gates, Warren Buffett, and David Rockefeller. The invitation stated the purpose of the gathering was to consider how they could use their wealth to slow the growth of the world's population. This depopulation movement never died in America. The, the eugenics concept died. They changed the name uh, but it's never died. It's part of Satan's agenda to kill, steal, and destroy. A lot of conservatives, sadly, are uh, starting to think more highly of uh, Bill Maher, just because he's kind of the darling of Fox News now and that kind of thing. I've been warning against Bill Maher forever. He is not a good guy. You don't need to listen to anything he says, but uh, he's one of the examples of these eugenicists. He said, I'm pro-choice. I'm for assisted suicide. I'm for regular suicide. I'm for whatever gets the freeway moving. That's what I'm for. It's too crowded. The planet is too crowded, and we need to promote death. That's what Canada is doing more blatantly than just about any country, although there are some pretty bad ones over in Europe. But recently they expanded their assisted suicide law to allow mentally ill, depressed, discouraged people that are just a little despondent these days to kill themselves legally with the help of a doctor. 
there was a 30-second commercial. I won't play the whole commercial, but it's just sickening as it shows a young lady, uh, and it even dedicates the commercial to her at the end, who took her own life using this law because she was having a bad day. She was discouraged. And notice what she says, even now, as I seek help to end my life, there is still so much beauty. <laughs> you just have to be brave enough to say it. The glorifying of death. Everything Satan does is exactly the opposite of God. God is life. Satan is death. He wants to glorify death. So the commercial is, is basically encouraging people that are depressed. Come on, you can say it. Just be brave. Come on, you can do it. Say it. Say it. All you have to do is say it. Please kill me. There you go. There you did it. See now how hard was that? That's what they're promoting. John Holdren was Obama's primary science advisor. He suggested the development of a long-term sterilizing capsule that could be implanted under the skin. And you could remove it when pregnancy was desired, uh, and it would allow more coercive forms of fertility control. He said you could implant it at puberty, and then with official permission, they would remove it to allow you a limited number of births. Everybody knows Margaret Sanger, who founded what became Planned Parenthood. She said, all of our problems are the result of overbreeding among the working class. See, it's an us versus them. It's us, the elites, the adepts, the good people that are the right color, that, that are perfect. And all of you others are the working class, right? the plebes. The most merciful thing a large family does to one of its infant members is to kill it. Paul Ehrlich, American biologist, very well known in his day for promoting uh, you know, depopulation. He said, nobody, in my view, has the right to have 12 children or even three, unless, of course, the second one is twins. Right? Ted Turner, big-time uh, eugenicist. Uh, he's, many people think he was the one behind uh, the Georgia Guidestones that give the 10 um, commandments, if you will, of the global elite, the first one of which is to reduce the world's population to 500 million. Uh, and he said, we need to get it down to 250 to 300 million people. Detroit News columnist Nolan Finley said we should put contraceptives in drinking water. We've just got to do something to cut down on the population. Nina Fedorov, who was uh, a key advisor to Hillary Clinton, said we've got to continue to decrease the growth rate of the global population because the planet simply can't support that many more people. The Sierra Club is a longstanding uh, arm of the Luciferian agenda, one of those uh, outposts advancing their uh, goals. And David Brewer, uh, the executive director, said childbearing should be a punishable crime against society unless the parents hold a government license. All potential parents should be required to use contraceptive chemicals with the government issuing antidotes for citizens chosen for childbearing. Everybody remembers the late Prince Philip saying that in the event I am reincarnated, reincarnated, I'd like to return as a deadly virus in order to contribute something to solving overpopulation. I wonder how that worked out for him. Uh, a lot of people have no idea that the United States government has an office of population affairs. You can go to hhs.gov and find it. Thomas Ferguson, who was a former official at the Department of Population Affairs, said, quote, there is a single theme behind all of our work. We must reduce population levels. Once population is out of control, it requires authoritarian government, even fascism, to reduce it. You go to their website in the About section, it says this, the OPA advises the Secretary and Assistant Secretary for Health on a wide range of reproductive and adolescent health topics, and one of those is sterilization. Sterilization. See, the Bible says all those who hate God love death. Satan hates God, he loves death. The wicked have drawn the sword to slay those who are of upright 
conduct. David says in Psalm 37, the wicked spies upon the righteous and seeks to kill him. Satan is a killer. And, and Satan's co-conspirators say, come, come along with us, join in. Let us lie in wait to shed blood. Let us lurk secretly for the innocent without cause. Homicide is a key element of Satan's war on people. The second one is hatred. Hatred. If we go back to the text, it talks about how they killed the Lord Jesus and their own prophets, but it says they have persecuted us. They have persecuted us. That word persecuted means to harshly drive out from your presence. In other words, it's a hatred so deep you can't even stand to be around the person. And the Thessalonians' uh, opponents, the believers, uh, the, uh, the opponents of the believers seem to have been mainly Jews. And, of course, Paul desperately wanted unbelieving Jews to come to faith in Christ. But they were consistently throughout Scripture the most antagonistic persecutors of early Christianity. Now, the second time around when Christ comes back, it's just going to be the opposite. The ma vast majority of, of Jews, at least in leadership, will believe the gospel and will receive their king instead of crowning him uh, with thorns. But they persecuted us. That, that implies hatred, hatred. As I said, Satan hates God and he hates God's people. Jesus said, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you are of the world, the world will love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, because I, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Satan's plan is hateful. It's a hateful plan. It's full of hate. And that's why a hateful attitude is one of the most distasteful and offensive. If you've ever, ever been on the object, uh, you know, the end of that. Uh, I have, what we probably all have at various times. Man, it's tough. And you need to remember that the next time you feel those feelings of hatred coming up in your heart. It doesn't come from the Spirit, it comes from the flesh. You're never acting more like Satan than when you have hateful feelings in your heart. Remember that. Satan's a hater. Uh, Jesus goes on to say, He who hates me hates my Father also. <laughs> if I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would have no sin. They, they would have no sin. In other words, they wouldn't have had anything to complain about. Because, but because I am God and proved myself to be God in the flesh, especially in the gospel, John's gospel account, um, now they've seen and also hated both me and my Father. In John 3, Jesus says, everyone practicing evil hates the light. Hatred. Hatred. So homicide, hatred. Number three is hostility. Still in verse 15, we see that they acted, they do not please God and they act contrary to all men. Contrary. Some English translations translate that Greek word contrary there as hostile. That's a good translation. They're, they were hostile. Um, uh, and, and they were hostile to these young uh, believers. Uh, the Thessalonians' persecution, by the way, lasted a long time. Uh, you know, you ever been there? You've been in a season of persecution, a season of trouble, where you just feel like the devil's throwing up every little thing your way to discourage and defeat. Uh, well, they dealt with it at least six years because we know Paul, when he wrote 2 Corinthians uh, on his uh, third missionary journey, six years later, he refers back to the churches in Macedonia where Thessalonica was. And he says they endured, quote, a great trial of affliction and continuing to give evidence of their steadfast faith in the Lord. 
He says that the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded in the riches of their liberality. That deep poverty that Paul talks about probably was the result of the persecution and the looting and just the injustices that they faced uh, from these contrary men. You go to Mark chapter 6, that same word translated contrary in our text is translated against. And this is a good word picture. This is Jesus uh, looking at the disciples on the boat, and he says, He saw them straining at rowing, for what? The wind was against them. That word against, same word translated contrary in verse 15 of our text. So as we face Satan's attack, sometimes it feels like everything in life is going against us, like a wind pushing you the exact opposite direction that you want to go, and it's everything within you to keep going. You ever feel like that? That's Satan's war against God's people. We need to consider the source. So we see homicide, hatred, hostility. And the next one, I want to camp out here for just a second, hoaxing. Hoaxing. Satan's a liar. Uh, We know that as a matter of fact. But verse 16, these uh, persecutors were forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles that they may be saved forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles that they may be saved. He says they always uh, fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. In other words, by their opposition, these enemies of the gospel were adding and heaping more and more wrongdoings on their head. And therefore, they were hastening God's judgment. Ultimately, that will come in the prophetic wrath of God during the 70th week of Daniel, that seven-year tribulation, as we read about in Revelation 6. But it's only a matter of time before God pours out his judgment on these people. They're storing up wrath, as we read about in Romans chapter 1. But I got to thinking about this concept of deceit and lying and hoaxing. Uh, How do Satan's minions forbid someone from speaking the gospel? Well, they use words. They issue edicts. We have an example of this, interestingly enough. In Scripture, Diotrephes was a false teacher that John calls out in his third epistle. And he says, therefore, if I come, I will call to mind his deeds, that's Diotrephes, which he does. Well, what was he doing? Pratting against us with malicious words and not content with that, he himself does not receive the brethren and forbids. That's that same word that we just read in verse uh, 16, forbidding. So you forbid most often by using words, by selling a falsehood, telling tales, speaking the opposite of the good news, the opposite of the gospel. And that's what Satan's been trying to do. He's blinding men's hearts to the gospel. That's what, that's what his goal is, whose minds the God of this age has blinded. Remember, mind and heart are used interchangeably in Scripture. Going back to Jesus' words in John 8, not only is Satan a murderer, but he's a liar. He does not stand in the truth. There's no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources. He's a liar and the father of it. And his co-conspirators, as I have documented extensively in my last three books, are also a bunch of liars. Uh, I comment in there every time they type a story out on their keyboard, lies appear on the screen. That's what the media does. That's what mainstream agenda does. It's lie after lie after lie. I've got an uh, a interview coming out um, I don't remember when it's scheduled to air either this week, maybe, I think it's this week, it might be next week, but I just recorded it with John Loeffler. Fascinating discussion. I love that guy. And he did a great job talking about how the, the more exposed their lies become, the more they double down. 
It's like they don't even care that they, the, the jig is up. They, they could care less. They're just continuing uh, you know, to, to advance the agenda, which, by the way, is one of the signs of the times that I believe indicates we're getting closer and closer because more and more people are waking up, more and more people are seeing through the ruse, and yet they're just full speed ahead. They think they can get to the finish line before the public turns on them and realizes, hey, this isn't happening. I remember writing back in 2012 in my book, Great Last Day's Deception, about the leaked Copenhagen documents that proved what was then called the, the global warming was a hoax. I mean, they were all private emails back and forth saying what they were going to say, making up data, making up you know scientific evidence, all to advance an agenda. And I would have thought that was the end of it. You know, people, that should have put the whole thing to death. But no, it's even worse now. They don't care. They don't care because they, they control the narrative. So Satan's a liar. We see in the heavens five of his lies. We read about this in Isaiah uh, that led to him being uh, kicked out of heaven. He said, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of the congregation. That was really his goal. He wanted to preside over God's highest creation, mankind. He said, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. In other words, above God in the third heaven, I will be like the Most High. Those are his heavenly lies. And then he brought his lying, scheming approach to earth when he, when he uh, connected with Eve in the garden. And we see at least four earthly lies. First of all, he said, has God indeed said? Remember that? Questioning the truth. Basically implying that God's word is not true. The Bible is not true. This is what you see Yuval Noah Harari going around doing. The Bible is just a myth. It's a fiction. Nobody would believe in it, only a fool, right? So he says, has God indeed said? His second lie was, you will not surely die. Remember, God said, in the day thou eatest thereof, you shall surely die. Satan says, no, you won't. Don't worry about it. You can sin and get away with it. There's no eternal consequence whatsoever for sin. That's a lie. And then he says, your eyes will be opened. Remember that? In other words, the truth lies within you. This is a biggie. This is where we are today. But it's nothing new under the sun. Satan's not creative. He wants to be the creator, but he's not. He's using the same old MO that he used in the garden. Your eyes will be open. There is no absolute truth. The truth lies within you. And then <clears throat> you will be like God, knowing good and evil. In other words, right and wrong is yours to decide. You get to decide what's right and wrong, which, of course, is the age-old problem of mankind. Satan is a liar. He lied in heaven. He lies on earth. And the Bible tells us that evil men and imposters are getting worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. So I know we've talked about this before, but if you look at God's plan of the ages, we're living right now in the last days, the final age before the kingdom comes. <clears throat> and if you look at when sin entered the world, we'll put it right here, ever since sin entered the world, 6,000 years ago, things have been getting worse and worse and worse. And that means, according to 2 Timothy 3.13, we are more deceived today than we were yesterday, and we will be more deceived tomorrow than we are today. Satan is not going to deceive the world one day. He's deceiving the world today in preparation for the Antichrist's global deception when he takes the helm after the rapture. It's going to get worse and worse, but it will reach unprecedented heights during that uh, tribulation period. So this seven-year period after the rapture, prior to Christ coming back triumphantly at the Battle of Armageddon, uh, is when it's going to reach unprecedented heights. That's why 
you know, so, so deceptions are going to get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger as we approach that time. That's one of the signs of the times that we see today. The fact that otherwise obvious lies are so easily accepted. I mean, we could list, go, go on all day listing them, uh, but people are easily uh, duped. Um, so that's, this is one of the reasons why Jesus, when speaking of that future tribulation period uh, to, to the generation of Jewish leaders that will be alive during that time, he repeatedly warns against deception. The Olivet Discourse, he starts out with, Take heed that no one deceive you. And again and again he says, Many false prophets are going to deceive you. In fact, it would be possible, if it were possible, even the elect would be deceived. Is believing Israel uh, would be deceived. Paul tells us in the present church age that in the latter times, many people will depart from the faith, giving heed to what? Deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. Paul talks about in 2 Thessalonians, which we'll get to in our series, that the Antichrist, referred to here as the future lawless one, all of his actions are going to be according to the working of Satan. <clears throat> in what way? Lying wonders. He goes on to say he's going to have all unrighteous deception. <clears throat> deception will reach its pinnacle during that future tribulation period. Even the false prophet, the subject of my most recent book, is going to be using deception. The Bible tells us that he's going to deceive those who dwell on the earth and convince them to worship the Antichrist and take the mark of the beast. But the good news is, and I love how in Revelation 20, not only does it speak of the devil's ultimate demise, <clears throat> but it once again reminds us who he is. The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet were. He's going to go end up in the same place that the Antichrist and the false prophet are in the whole unholy trinity, Satan, false prophet, uh, Satan, Antichrist, false prophet, end up defeated, <clears throat> just as God's word promised. So he, he uses lies, and that's the hardest thing for us to overcome uh, today is to see through the lies. So we've got homicide, hatred, hostility, hoaxing, and finally hindering, and this is really uh, at the end of this passage kind of what kind of set the tone for this message this morning is this word hindering. So verses 17 and 18, we pray, brethren, having been taken away from you for a short time in presence, but not in heart, endeavored more eagerly to see your face with a great desire. Therefore, we want to come to you, even I, Paul, time and time again. Notice the deep affection that he has for his friends here and those that he, that he led to the Lord. But he wasn't able to come just yet. Why? Because Satan hindered us. Satan hindered us. Everything Satan is trying to do now centers around his goal of hindering the work of God, hindering the spiritual growth in your own life, hindering your walk with the Lord, hindering the strengthening of your faith. The word hindering here is a unique Greek word. It, it, it literally means to cut into or make impassable, to cut into or make Impassable. It's only used four times in the New Testament. Originally, it meant the breaking up of a road to make it impassable. We know a thing or two about that here in Colorado. Every spring, they start tearing up the roads to make them better for the next uh, winter. Uh, but if you get that word picture, you're driving along, all of a sudden the road is torn up. You can't go. You're stopped. You're hindered. Over time, this word came to just be used to any kind of hindering in general. But I can remember years ago, I was keynote speaker at a fundraising event for a seminary in Atlanta. <clears throat> and I was double booked that weekend because as soon as that event was over, I was to drive up to Gatlinburg, just north of Atlanta, 
and speak over the weekend a couple of times at an event there. Well, I worked it out to where I could speak at this banquet and then leave immediately after I was done speaking and head over the Smoky Mountains, if you know that region, up into Gatlinburg and be there just in time to take the stage for my message, which was at 8.30 that night. And uh, so all was going well. I was uh, driving through the Smoky Mountains. I was using a Garmin GPS. That's before we used our phones for GPS. And I got literally within 10 minutes of the venue. And all of a sudden, the road was closed. Big sign, mudslide ahead, road closed. Now, if you know anything about that region, there's no other way to get through. You've got to go all the way back, retrace your steps, come back through north of Atlanta, pick up 40, and come in from the west. Needless to say, I didn't make my scheduled event that night. Fortunately, they were gracious. I was able to speak the next morning. But it was it, it's a good mental picture of what happens. You've got some place you want to go, something you want to do, but something completely beyond your control hinders that. And that's what Satan is trying to do. So I think the lesson here is to remember that sometimes when Satan is coming at you full throttle to hinder you, don't panic. Just remember the source and God must have other plans. God's going to help you know, bring good out of an otherwise bad situation. Because remember, all of Satan's plans have to be sort of okayed, if you will, in this present age by God. I don't understand it. And all I know is that God lives in the eternal now. And so what seems like Satan is going unchecked now, from God's perspective, he's being judged. Just picture that. From God's per- God doesn't see Satan winning earthly battles the way we think of it prophetically that, you know, things are getting worse and worse, and there's going to be this battle, and the seal trumpet and bull judgments, and the wrath of Satan, and Antichrist and fall. We think of it linearly. That's not what God sees when he looks, because he's, you know, atemporal. He's outside of time, space, and matter. He's eternal. So he's looking at that lake of fire moment when Satan is cast into the lake of fire. So we don't understand the difference between sovereignty and, and free will, but just understand, Satan wants to hinder us. We go back to our text He goes on to say, for what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? For you are our glory and joy. Paul's words of affection for this uh, recipient is just uh, really, really beautiful. But notice that word crown. Uh, I took the time to uh, put together a chart that is long overdue. I talk about it all the time, but I never put it in chart form. And that's the believer's crowns. We see five of them in the New Testament, and this is one of them. Uh, but a crown is, is something that you receive as a result of faithfulness here on earth in specific areas at the Bema, which we will have for all of eternity. By the way, when people try to point out that in Revelation 4, we're laying our crowns at the feet of the throne, the Greek text there indicates repeatedly, not like we lay them down and, get, and we're done with them. Because some people say, why do you care about your crown? You're just going to give it away. No, you're repeatedly offering that to the Lord as of gratitude for all of eternity. So you want to earn crowns and other rewards at the Bema judgment. But we see, for example, in 1 Corinthians 9, you get the imperishable crown for leading a disciplined life. Here, Paul talks about the crown of rejoicing that those who have led people to the Lord and helped disciple them will receive. Uh, Paul later on his deathbed talks about the crown of righteousness, which is a unique crown for those who love the Lord's appearing. Uh, James talks about the crown of life for enduring trials. And then in 1 Peter 5, elders who serve the church well and shepherd the flock faithfully are going to get a special crown called a crown of glory. And then notice, as I mentioned in a previous message, that every one of the chapters in 1 Thessalonians ends 
with uh, a reference to the rapture. And here it is again. He says, is it not you are our crown in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? And that's what motivated them. That's what should motivate us as we look for that blessed hope. So Satan's war against God's people. Satan is going to try to get you coming and going. You know, he's everywhere. He uses homicide, hatred, hostility, hoaxing, hindering to try to win the battle. But we need to remember what, Paul, what John talks about in the passage that has really been kind of the theme passage for my last three books, and that's 1 John chapter 4. He, after talking about the spirit of the Antichrist and the many Antichrists among us and many false prophets among us, he says, he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. So we need never fear because we know who wins in the end. And so we need to see with spiritual eyes, like we talked about at the beginning with Ephesians 6, that it's not a flesh and blood battle. Recognize that, you know, this is very likely when we're facing hindrances, uh, the work of the devil. Now, by the way, I, I've talked before about the fact that not every bad thing that happens is the work of the devil. I mean, there are consequences for sin. If you, if you, you willfully sin, you're going to reap the consequences of it. That's just life. If, you know, you might have a flat tire, that's not Satan attacking you. It could be, but it doesn't have to be. But I think if you look with spiritual eyes, you'll see how the closer we get to the Lord's return, the more this war against God's people is indeed raging. And so what do we want to do? We want to tell Satan, get thee behind me. Get thee behind me. And if he's still there, say, get further away. Quote the scripture as Jesus did uh, in the wilderness when he was confronted by the devil. Uh, name the name of the Lord and just keep moving forward. You know, I didn't respond very well when my road was blocked. I was very frustrated. Uh, and But it was, a, it was a, a, a kind of a pop quiz. It was a test. And uh, although I failed that one, hopefully I've learned in, in, you know, since then to, to respond more appropriately when things beyond your control happen. Just strengthen your faith. Look to the Lord. Say, Lord, I don't know why this is happening, but I know you've got a plan. And we're not going to let Satan get the victory. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this uh, reminder from Scripture, again, that there is a spiritual battle raging. And we pray that uh, you would give us the strength, help us to avail ourselves of the strength we already have uh, in your word and through the indwelling Holy Spirit uh, to fight the battle spiritually the way your word tells us to. Lord, we know that uh, there may be people listening to this uh, podcast or watching the video who don't know you we pray that uh, satan who's trying to blind their hearts that you would just convict them and open up the scales on their eyes help them to see their own sin and their own separation from a holy god and their own need for a savior and help them to trust in jesus christ your son and our savior as the only one who can forgive sin and give the free gift of eternal life because he purchased it with his own blood and for those who already know you we just pray that you would help us to strengthen our faith, stay in, in the word, abide in you. And it's in Jesus' precious name that we pray. Amen.